and watered it and cared for it and all this stuff. And it looked perfect and she was so happy. And she decided one day that maybe if she had would transplant the succulent into a bigger pot, maybe it would grow a little bit bigger. And so as she went to transplant it, she started to take it apart. And as you will notice, it is actually fake. It's just styrofoam with a little bit of sand glued to And she had been caring for her fake succulent very well for two years. Now maybe you have, have run into, while shopping on the internet, because we probably all shop on the internet quite a bit nowadays. Um, I love the fact that I don't have to go to stores nearly as much as I used to. I don't like going to stores. Um, that uh, there's a lot of fake stuff out there. Amazon has a massive problem with fake stuff. Fake Gucci and fake this and fake that. eBay, same thing. eBay always scares me. Um, a bunch of people there you can sell them. Turkey 
shooting down a Russian big over the Syrian border back when there was all that trouble in Syria. Not the Ukrainians shooting down a Russian big. Reality is an important thing. I, I mean, it's important to all of us. But obviously, reality sometimes not easily defined. Can't always be sure. It's interesting because the idea of identifying what is real is exactly where the Apostle John begins in this letter that we're going to study called 1 John. Now, to give you a little context, 1 John is one of the last New Testament writings. Most scholars believe 1 John is written no sooner than the 70s AD, more likely the 80s or early 90s AD, probably after John's Gospel, but before the book of Revelation. It's deeply connected with John's gospel in language and theme and style. And, and in fact, that's part of why we think John wrote this letter uh, is because of how much it sounds like the gospel of John and how the themes are connected and that sort of thing. In fact, it doesn't even read really like a letter. Like when we think of letters, think of Paul's letters, right? And it doesn't really read like it. It reads more sort of like a, like a sermon. It doesn't have his name attached to it. Because of style, that's why we think John wrote it. It doesn't have a recipient specified, right? All of Paul's letters said, you know, to the Romans, to the church of Ephesus, or whatever. No, it doesn't have any of that. Um, we assume, since John spent most of his pastoral ministry in Ephesus, they probably were the first recipients. But you know what? That's just an educated guess. We can't be sure, because it doesn't say it. Doesn't address some particular issue or issues in the church that it was sent to. You know, it's not like, I mean, you know, Paul's letters is like, uh, you know, you guys uh, get together for the Lord's Supper and it's a free for all. What's your problem? Kind of thing. You know, Paul's letters, a lot of that kind of stuff, right? What's your problem? Stop doing that. Not like that. Just kind of walks us through a variety of subjects that all revolve around the general ideas of what does it mean to know Jesus, and if you know Jesus, how should that manifest itself in your life? Everything kind of fits into those categories as we read through it. But all of this is going to predicate itself on the idea that Jesus is real. That it's the reality of Jesus that forms the basis for everything. Everything John's going to say and everything that really matters. And in fact, he's even going to start out by showing us that his authority, John's authority, is based on this reality of Jesus. Let's look at the first couple of verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. Now you notice the words he used here, right? He says heard, and he says something about seen three times, right? Twice he uses the word seen, once looked upon. Touched. Right? He's heard and seen and touched. These are words that describe having a physical experience of something or of someone. And then the idea of this physical reality is enhanced with the word manifest. 
Now manifest here has to do with something being revealed. Something that would not have been known otherwise unless we had somehow been shown it. It's the idea of manifest. John's basing everything he's going to say in this entire letter on the concept that God has revealed life to us in a physical way. We'll get to what life means here in a second. John's going to instruct us, he's going to talk to us, not based on hearsay, well, you heard. It's not based on philosophical musings like some sort of Greek philosopher would have done, right? Well, you know, the ether is out there, and you have the four primary shapes, and you know, whatever. No? It's not going to be based on the opinions of various ancient rabbis, because that would have been how the Jewish scholars of that time would have taught, right? Well, Rabbi Akiva says such and such, but Rabbi so-and-so says such and such, and Rabbi Yavi says this, and, you know, that sort of thing. That's how they taught, right? This is why, incidentally, remember that the, the whole thing in the Gospels, and the people hear Jesus, and they go, he speaks as one with authority, right? That's because what they were used to were these rabbis trying to speak from somebody else's authority. Well, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and he was a really cool guy, so, you know, kind of thing. Not that that's the worst thing or anything. We do that with a lot of things, right? But Jesus is different. John, though, here is going to speak from having things revealed to him and to the other apostles, obviously, in a physical, real way. In a concrete reality. It's not theory. It's not philosophy. It's reality. You know, throughout history, I mean, and even today, eyewitness testimony is, is highly valued. You go to you know, come to a crime scene, right, or an accident scene, the investigators, what are they going to first do? They're going to seal off the scene and then try to get as many witness statements as possible. Right? They're going to they're try to piece together what really happened. Now, then they can get computer analysis and DNA evidence and forensic science. And all, and all that's great, right? That might, that might drive, the, drive the case home. But it all is going to start with, so what, what did you see? Did so-and-so drive through the red light? Or was the light green? That sort of thing. What was your experience? Remember, John spent over three years daily traveling and learning and witnessing the person and work of Jesus. And even then, he points out that his actual, real, physical experience was a revelation from God, made manifest, or as maybe your version might translate it, revealed, indicates the idea that something was made known that we couldn't have known otherwise. It was made known to him in a way we wouldn't have known otherwise. If it wouldn't have been made physical in front of him, he'd have never known. Now, I just want to make as a side note, if your translation, like if you're using the NIV, it uses the word appeared here. Take, take, take one of those CIA highlighters. You know those the CIA highlighter? It's all black. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and use your CIA highlighter to scratch out the word appeared there. That is a completely inadequate definition of that word. Um, because it doesn't catch the essence of what that word really means. Something revealed, not something appeared out of nowhere. 
that he'd be revealed for acting in that. So based on John's actual eyewitness, personal experience of Jesus, whom God has revealed to him and now to us, he wants us to know three things about the life, about Jesus. That Jesus is the original reality, that Jesus is eternal life, and that Jesus himself is the message. So in verses 1 and 2, he talks about Jesus, the original reality. I, I like how John uses all these words that are descriptive of Jesus so that we know who he's talking about without ever saying the name Jesus. does the same thing in the first chapter of his gospel, right? He calls Jesus the word of life. He points out, again, just like in John chapter 1, that Jesus existed in fellowship with the Father from the beginning. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 say... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Before there was creation, before there was this, or anything else, there was Jesus. He's with God the Father. And by implication of the Spirit, even though the Spirit's not mentioned. They exist prior to all the things together in this relationship that we sometimes call the Godhead, or we use the word Trinity, okay? The idea of God is three persons but one God. I know that's deep. It's one of those mysteries in the Bible where you can, you can see something is taught, but kind of tough to explain. Maybe we'll have that in a future sermon. I don't know. But you get it. I don't want to get rapture on that right now. Well, I'm in a kind of but John's point here is not some theological musing about Jesus' pre-existence or something like that. It's to show us that before anything else, Jesus is reality. He was before all of this. In fact, he made all of this. It says nothing that was made was made except it was made by him. And now he's been revealed to us in person. Not just in theory, but as a tangible, physical reality to John and the other apostles who saw him and heard him and walked with him and touched him and all that kind of stuff. And many other people, and they all experienced Jesus as a person. He's the basis of reality, and then he was physically revealed in that reality. Now the fancy theological term for this that you've probably heard many times is the word incarnation. When a spiritual reality is made physical, we call that incarnation. It's from the Latin word incarnare, which literally means to make flesh. If you're here in the center of that word, right? incarnare, carn, like carnal, fleshly. John wants us to know Jesus is the original reality basis of reality. Anything else that might be real, Jesus is the basis for its existence. He's in fact the basis for everything. And John's experience of Jesus' incarnation is the basis then of his authority to tell us about Jesus because he's telling us about the original reality that he has personally physically experienced. But he also tells us Jesus is eternal life. Calls Jesus the eternal life. The definite article there, right? The the indicates to us he's not talking about some nebulous concept of eternal life, 
not talking about, you know, floating on clouds, playing harps, some sort of thing, weird thing like that. Talking about a tangible reality, the eternal life. Jesus is the eternal life. The experience of Jesus as the eternal life is directly related to what Jesus says in, again, back to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6. Right? What does Jesus say there? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way, the truth, the life. Embodiment of those things. Okay? He didn't just come to tell you about the truth, or tell you about eternal life, or tell you about the way. He is in his person those things. Eternal life is not some weird propositional truth or platitude and just an assenting to a bunch of facts. Eternal life, the life, the truth, the way, is, is Jesus himself. His person. All these things are, to use the fancy theological word, incarnated, made flesh, in the person of Jesus. This is why we talk about a relationship with Jesus. Because he's a person that is the eternal life. That's why John chapter 15, right, in his gospel, he talks about what? About abiding in Jesus, right? In a person. Not just in some truths. It's why in John chapter 1, verse 4, the verse after verses 1 through 3 that we read earlier, he will write about Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. Remember, after Adam and Eve and that whole debacle in the garden where disobedience to God occurs and sin becomes a foundational part of our lives in this world, from that point on, death reigned. Because of sin, because we sin, death is the result. In sin is death, eternal death. But in Jesus is life. Because he is life, just as sin is death. He's life. He's not eternal death, he's eternal life. So when we talk about believing, having faith in, trusting, whatever words you want to stick in there, the person and work of Jesus for salvation, we're not, we're not talking about a set of facts. I'm not saying that the facts aren't important. Say that the facts point to something, they point to a person. We're talking about believing in or putting our faith in a person. Having the person of Jesus is having eternal life. Because he is eternal life. He is the eternal life, John said. Putting our faith in the person of Jesus does a whole lot of things that we're not going to go into, right? I mean, you know, we have a lot of, oh, there's justification and sanctification and mystification. Other vacation. No vacation. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Take a vacation from my sin? I don't know. My wife will hold that one happen. No. What's particularly wonderful, though, is that in Jesus, we exchange what we have, which is sin and eternal death, for the eternal life. In the person of Jesus. So that means also then, the third thing John wants to know is Jesus himself is the message. That's the third thing he tells us. He is the message. He says that the physical reality of Jesus, that is literally eternal life incarnate,
incarnate is the message that he's proclaiming and testifying about. Jesus is the message. I like to think of this idea as Jesus first, everything else later. Now, what do I mean by that? Mamata? Brothers and sisters, we often get sucked into and bogged down by all sorts of secondary discussions with people who do not know Jesus about all sorts of things that distract from the message of Jesus. So, I want to tell you back, so back when I was in campus ministry, back in the last millennium, some of you weren't even born yet. Sorry, I just can't resist those kind of guys. <laughs> Several, several of the guys in our, in our campus ministry were really, really, really into the whole creation evolution thing. I mean, we're talking the charts, tracing genealogies back, and the, the whole thing, right? Okay? I sometimes just have to be like, cool, bro. <laughs> I like creationism. I am a creationist. But one thing I learned that time is that, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, and you can, maybe you have, but I haven't. I have never met a single person who came to faith in Jesus just because of creation evolution debates. Creation, in my mind, is part of everything else later, not Jesus first. Now, my proof of that is, do I need to believe in creationism to be saved? You better say no. <laughs> Do I even need to believe the Bible is authoritatively and entirely true to be saved? Better say no. No. I do need to confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that he rose from the dead. Jesus first. The rest will come later. Now! So right now some of you are comfortable. This is not to say those other things are not important. So I don't want you coming back sometime a month from now and going, Pastor Orwell said that believing the Bible is authoritative and true isn't important. No, no, I didn't say that. Those other things are a matter of growth and discipleship, not of salvation. They're not Jesus first. Do I want to see all of us be creationists? Yes. Do I want all of us to be Fully convinced of the authority of Scripture? Double yes. Triple yes. Of course I do. But it is not normally, if ever, those things that get us to Jesus first. It's Jesus who gets us to those things. You start reading the Gospels, and you start believing in Jesus, and you start taking him seriously... And then you suddenly see that, hmm, he takes that whole story about Adam and Eve seriously. Well, you know, Jesus, the Son of God who is there, takes that story seriously. Maybe I should take that story seriously. Jesus gets me those things. So many areas in how we represent Jesus could be improved, in my humble opinion, by following a Jesus is the message, Jesus first philosophy. Do we really need to start out with pointing out to some person who doesn't follow Jesus, just, just doing the whole sin, judgment, 
kind of thing right off the bat. See, I, I, I want to start. I want to start with. Let me tell you about how amazing Jesus is. Let me tell you about how much He's done for me. Why don't you read through the Gospels and look at Jesus? How He wants amazing things. How He's going to change lives. How all these things He did. How He's the one who can give me the best life. That sort of thing. Oh, and why do I need Jesus? Because I was trapped, enslaved, in fact, is the word the book of Romans used, enslaved to sin. I was a slave to sin. Slave have any rights? Slave get to do what he wants? No, enslaved to sin. And sin is death, and let me tell you, when I met Jesus, I did not even fully realize how much death I was living in. But it was death. Until I met eternal life himself. But Jesus loved me enough to make life transformation possible for me. From darkness to light. From death to life. Did you notice the subtle difference there? Jesus is awesome. Jesus changes lives. That's where I want to start. Jesus, Jesus is amazing. You read about him in the gospel, he's so attractive and, lo and loving. But see, I got a, I got a problem. That problem's sin. Jesus first. It's not that sin and judgment and all the rest aren't important, they're critical. But the wooing starts with Jesus. The book of Romans says it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. Kindness. Leads me to what? Repentance. What do I got to repent from? My sin. When someone sees how lovely and wonderful Jesus is, very often they will realize they are, as Peter describes himself as the other disciples, Lord, we are sinful people. Because, man, when I see myself in the light of Jesus, that's pretty rough sometimes. So it's upon the basis that Jesus is everything, that's what everything hinges on. It's on that basis. He's reality. He's the message. He's eternal life. Everything that we want to have a share in. Because that's where John finishes in this idea of having a share. Let me read verses 3 and 4 of 1 John. That which we've seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now if you've been in church for a while, which a lot of you have, and you've heard a bunch of sermons, you know that the word fellowship is the English translation of the Greek word koinonia. What you might not know is that the word fellowship is a terrible translation of the word koinonia. Now, if no one's ever told you that, I'm sorry that I'm here in verse <coughs> 4 this morning. But it's a terrible translation. This is because what's happened over the years, it probably wasn't a terrible translation years and years ago in the days of the King James Version. In 1611, that might have worked real well. But unfortunately, we're at 2023 now. And over the years, in church, we have turned the word fellowship into something akin to hanging out together. Or even better, my favorite part, having a meal together. Yeah, I like that kind of fellowship. Fellowship with the youth group this afternoon. We're going to have a meal together. Some food. 
It has come to mean basically sanctified group activities in church. <laughs> come to men's breakfast for good food and fellowship. We'll meet in the fellowship hall. Right? Now we call it the fellowship hall. I call it the basement. <laughs> you get that? actually means something more like have a share in or partake in something. When John says in verse 3 he's proclaiming Jesus so others can have fellowship with him and with God the Father and his son Jesus, he's saying that he is proclaiming the truth and the reality about Jesus, which he personally physically experienced so that others can have a share in or partake in that reality. Not just so you can know some facts about Jesus, like on a newscast, right? And watch the news. If I watch the news and it tells me about, you know, some world event, okay, it tells me about the latest supposed propaganda about this war in Ukraine, it is not the same as me having a share in the war in Ukraine. I'm not Ukrainian. I don't own any Ukrainian real estate. I don't have any friends or family in Ukraine. So I don't really have a share. I can pray for those people, right? I used to think with that. It's not the same as really having a share. But what he wants, not like that, he wants to actually, wants us to actually enjoy the same share in Jesus that he and the other apostles enjoy. Having a share implies participating in a meaningful way in something. We have to share our mission. We prayed for some missionaries this morning, right? You saw the picture up there, right? Okay. We, 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 we have a share in our missionaries because we financially support them, we pray for them, we care about them. We're involved in their lives. We, we participate in meaningful ways. We don't just hang their picture on our fridge. At least I hope you don't. Team sports are a great model of true koinonia, right? When a team is working together, they share in the win or in the loss. Everybody has a share in the thing, okay? Might not have the same roles. Somebody might be the coach. Somebody might be a forward. Another person might be a keeper. You can tell which kind of football I like better than the other kind of football. They all share it's got to share in the whole thing. You participate in a meaningful way. So since Jesus is reality, the basis of reality, the original reality, and since he's eternal life, and since he's the message, when we are part of Jesus, we have a share in all of these things. Which means we have a share then also in one another, in one another's lives. We participate in the reality of eternal life and participate in proclaiming message of Jesus. These are things that aren't just theoretical ideas. They're concrete realities for our daily life. We partake, we partake in one another's lives in meaningful ways because we have a share in Jesus. So John would start out his letter telling us Jesus is real. In fact, he's the basis of everything that's real. He is eternal life itself for people 
who were once destined for eternal death because of their sin. And he is the message that we must proclaim to others so they can have a share in Jesus also. Jesus really is the real real. And our lives should be Jesus first and everything else in it. Let's pray. Father, it's, um, it's a time in history, maybe every time in history has been this way, but we particularly feel the constant assault on the ideas of what is real. You can look on the internet or watch the news, it's hard to know if any, any of the stuff we're seeing is real or not. But we can know that Jesus is real. And in fact, the basis of all is real. That he is the eternal life, and that in him is life. Share and partake in that eternal life in Him and the lives of one another through Him. Help every one of us, wherever we're at with Jesus, for Him to become the first thing in our lives. Jesus first. Everything else will come in. We'll give Him the glory in Jesus.